There's far more to this life. Like shit things happen, but good things happen too. And you've just got to you just got to keep pushing through that shit when you're in it because when it comes good, it comes so good. G'day, and thanks for tuning in to Anything Goes. I'm your host, Edwina Robertson, aka Eddie. This show is brought to you with the intention of sharing interesting stories, experiences, and conversations from, well, mostly normal people. But before we get started, I just wanted to share with you that this will be the final episode for 2023 as I take a break and come back with fresh content in the new year. As a relatively new podcast and having rebranded not that long ago, I'm so utterly grateful for everyone who has tuned in thus far. I'm so grateful for everyone who supported and subscribed to the podcast and it's also been amazingly exciting to make the top 10 charts multiple times. I've learned a lot about what works in podcasting and what doesn't and this has given me a great base to up the ante in 2024 with some stellar stories that are lined up. For our final episode of the year, I have chatted to Kathy Gabriel, a woman who has not only competed in the world's toughest horse race, the Mongol Derby, once, but twice. It's a very interesting listen and an inspiring story of how she got there. Enjoy this journey of Kathy's, and I can't wait to be back in your ears, refreshed in 2024. Kathy Gabriel, thank you so much for your time today. We're doing this remotely, this interview, and I'm looking at you on my screen and it looks like you're in this little hut somewhere and I have to say it looks like you're accessing this interview from like satellite Wi-Fi because it's very, very pixelated. Maybe it sort of looks like something from the early 2000s. And I said to you before, can you move your screen across to the window and get a bit more light? And you're like, I can't because I actually live in a hut and I have limited access to electricity because I live off the grid. (laughs) So tell me, who, who are you? Where do you live? What do you do in this day in 2023? Yeah, well, I'm Kathy Gabriel. I live in a hut in the bush in the middle of nowhere, essentially. I come from Benambra is where I currently am situated and I'm situated somewhere between Benambra and Coryong in a cleared valley called the Tablelands and I purchased this farm back in 2018. Uh, It was nothing but like a rundown shack, blackberries everywhere and I decided to make my mark here and I sort of, there was a wombat living in this hut at the time when I brought the place and I thought, nah, bugger it, this is it. And so that's where I come live, out of the hut. It's a 100-year-old hut. Uh, it's pretty cool now. It's really nice inside, but it is cold. We're in the mountains. It's raining outside. And, yeah, life can be difficult when you're fully off-grid and as now I have launched my own photography full-time and everything's online and technical, when you have one power source and it's all solar, it can get a bit testing. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You know what they say, if you want to know what someone's like in a relationship, give them shitty Wi-Fi and see how they cope with that. That's kind of the true yeah. sign of how someone's going to be in a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be testing, I imagine. How big is your hut, Kathy? Oh, good question. Um, I don't actually know. I think it's like five metres by eight metres. It's like a little, little cabin, basically. Yeah, it's a little, yeah. That's why I call it a hut because it's like, <laughs> A bit, it's a bit smaller than a cabin. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is little. Uh, is it like a studio? Oh, I've never called it that, but that sounds fancy. <laughs> Let's call it the studio. Does it have a bedroom that is separate from the living area or is your bed in kind of like, is it all just one room? No, the bed's right behind me. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's a studio. <laughs> but I'm sitting... I'm sitting at my office <laughs> and the kitchen's just there. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not a long commute then, is it? No, no, not a long commute to work, no. Um, bit cold at night time going to the toilet and the shower because everything's outside. But, yeah, apart from that, it's comfy. <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know Bariyong, did you say? Benambra, yeah. <laughs> Benambra, sorry. And there was Kuriong. What was the other place you said? Koryong. Koryong, yeah, I was getting mixed up there. I was getting too – I was just creating my own little village. So you're near Mount Hotham, is that correct? Yeah, so not far from Mount Hotham, three hours from Albury Wodonga, five and a half hours northeast from sort of Melbourne in a straight line, and that's where you sort of find us. So you just said before you're becoming a – uh, oh, you've just become a photographer full-time. What do you like to capture? Uh, yeah, so equine. I'm the horse chick. So basically what we'll be talking about, it all stems from Mongolia. But I've been doing photography 
ever since I sort of entered into the agricultural industry, which was 16 years ago, and that's when I started dicking about with a camera. And then through life circumstances, I got very depressed, put the camera down, and it wasn't until I went back to Mongolia that I thought, no, I, th- I think I should give this a crack. And this year I just hung up the boots on the ag industry, 16 years, and stepped into pursuing my photography full-time. Yeah, great. Well done to you. It always takes a bit of guts to do something like that. But talking about guts, and as you said, while we're here to have this conversation today, you have entered not once but twice the world's hardest, effectively, horse race. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a fair old story that leads up to the Mongol Derby. And basically it all started when I was working in the Northern Territory on cattle properties and that up there and I met a fella called Mick who I promptly fell head over heels in love for and we had a year-long romance it was just fucking everything that it was meant to be and unfortunately he got hit and killed by a car and that's when my absolute world got shattered apart and at that age I was 24 and to be perfectly honest though not the ideal childhood but pretty squishy happy childhood like middle-class family we were never rich, but we were never poor, never had anything bad happen. And when that occurred and when I got that phone call, which I'll never forget, it was just, it was world ending. And like I do this in public speaking and I can never convey just what it was that happened that night. But it's, I always say like I died that night because mentally and physically I've never been the same person since. And so that's when, like I say, I fell into the hole. I continued working up in the Territory for a year after the accident, but I was just so lost that I ended up coming back home to Victoria here. Yay was where I grew up. And um, a year after that is when we got mum's cancer diagnosis, that it was terminal and she was given three months to live. And for me, my mum was my best friend. Um, She was my closest parent and she was there for everything. She's the reason I love my horses and that. So with Mick and then mum, it's just, I just imploded in every physical way you could implode. I turned to alcohol. I was severely depressed. I had very severe PTSD, anxiety issues going on that I didn't really recognise or know what the hell was going on. And that's everything that led up to the Mongol Derby. I was very lost. My partner at the time, because a year after Mick, I did meet someone else who was a lovely bloke, and he, on mum's cancer diagnosis, said to me, like, this is too much, you need help. And it was the first time anyone had ever even remotely said that you need help. And I was like, oh, am I that sick? Is this what it's like to be in a position to need help? And it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. I went and seen a counsellor and she was a bit of a grief counsellor as well. And she was the one that diagnosed me like pretty severe anxiety, PTSD. And that's when I found out like it's not normal to sit in a corner and just scream, cry for hours on end. I was like suicidal at the time. I just had... There was nothing. I had no reason to to go on and this counsellor like told me it was okay to feel that way and that's what led me to the derby. I um, seen this counsellor on and off and she taught me how to grieve like my mum while my mum was still alive, which was the healthiest thing I think anyone can do. And so when mum passed away a year after her diagnosis, it wasn't so much sadness. It was just like a relief that the pain had finally stopped And it was Mm. also a relief to lose someone and not fall into the same like depths of despair, more or less, of what it was when Mick got killed. Wow, that's a lot of a lot of loss in a very short period of time. And for someone who is relatively still quite young. Yeah, and mentally like I was young. Like I wasn't really immature, but having never had anything really that negative occur to me, like to have that much like just grief, despair, or in one two-year period, it was just like no wonder mentally I ended up where I was because, it, like, I didn't have any tools to to even remotely use in that situation to know what the hell I'm supposed to do. Like, like, what do you do? I don't. I, I didn't understand. Like, how how can life be so cruel? Is all I kept going back to was just like, how is life this horrible? Like, it can't be this bad. But it was, um, it was through the grief counsellor and while mum was still alive that I was like scrolling Facebook, probably shouldn't say, but drunk in the bush one night, that I came across this horse race, the Mongol Derby. And so it was a Queensland fella called Will Kaminsky had just come second, I think, in the race. 
And Will Kaminsky is a pretty big name in the horse world and camp drafting world. Pete Kaminsky is a big fella and that's his um, nephew is Will. And so that's why he was on my Facebook feed. And I thought, oh, what's this race in Mongolia? Anyway, I did a bit more Googling and a bit more research. And that's when I learned that it's a thousand kilometre horse race across Mongolia, recreation of Genghis Khan's postal system. You change horses every 30 to 40 Ks. It's an endurance race on the human condition, not the horse. The horses are very fit and capable. And so it's the ultimate test of human horsemanship endurance. And um, there's a bit more to the story on Mongolia. When I was a kid growing up, mum and me would watch every week Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman on Long Way Round where they rode their motorbikes from England round into New York and they went through Russia, Kazakhstan, Mongolia and back into Russia and we were fascinated and we loved it. When they went through Mongolia, I remember as a kid just like being obsessed with this country where everything was revolved around horses and that's why when I seen the Mongol Derby, I just instantly knew that this was it. This was the thing that like something to hang on to to just like I I say it's a rope that got thrown down into the well for me to grab onto to be like, this is it, this is the something, this is what I need. A little bit of a saviour for you almost. Yeah, it really was. I say it like I've never been a confident horse rider. I'm not a person that does like the crazy horse stuff. If there's a big scary horse to ride, I was never the person to put my hand up and say I'll ride that horse. And that's why for me it was such a big like leap to do something like this because the horses are semi-wild. Most of them are not broken in. It was quite an extreme thing for someone like myself to take on. And that's why it was like the ultimate push for me mentally and physically to like a saving grace. Like I've, I've got to do something like this because nothing else at that stage was working. Wow. The first year you did it was in 2018. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so I entered in 2017. I think it was October because you enter online, a simple online form that more or less said, can you ride a horse? Tick. Uh, <laughs> do you have the money to pay for this? I was like, tick. And um, are you aware you can die doing this race? I was like, tick. <laughs> and you sent that in and then you got a phone call interview and I had the interview and she said, yeah, well, if you can ride a horse and you can pay your entry fee, you're in. And so I was in. Mum was still alive and I called mum and I said I got into this race and she was over the moon and she was so happy for me. But then mum passed away Christmas that year and then I raced August the following year. How much was the entry fee to enter the race? Yeah, she's a hefty old entry fee. So in 2017 when I paid, I think we had to pay in British pounds. So it was all conversion, you know, it depended mm, what the dollar yeah. was doing. But I think at that stage it was about 16500 Australian is what I paid to enter that race. And I know most people go, oh, <laughs> Like mum's inheritance essentially paid for that. There's no way I had 16 grand kicking around. And um, that's why I called mum and asked mum because I did say to her like, hey, would you care if I blew quite a substantial amount of money on a horse race overseas? And she said, I think you'd be mad if you did it, Kath. So, yeah, so that's how and why I entered the first Mongol Derby. What a beautiful legacy for your mum to leave though. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, this property that I purchased in 2018 uh, I named it after mum. Lovely. So I purchased this property in March of 2018. And so that's like the main legacy she gave me was the gift to be able to purchase this property. And also what ends up being way more important and far more impactful on my life was she gave me the ability to enter this race and totally and utterly change my world. It's a wonderful opportunity for you to be able to do that. I know it's terrible and and the loss of your mother, you would to have her here, you know, ultimately that's what you would want. But I guess her loss wasn't in vain. You're able to take that and turn it into something super positive and almost life changing for you yourself. Not not in a sad grieving kind of way, but in a way that you could really grow as a person and, and it's almost like this full circle of you needed the Mongol Derby to help you get out of that grief and that sadness of losing your boyfriend and then losing your mom in such a short period of time and the Mongol Derby kind of lifted you out of that. But it only you could only do it because of the, the passing of your mother. So it's a really a full full circle in that whole story of how they, this has come about for you. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah, it absolutely is. Like you don't want to say it because like it, it is cruel, but I don't know. I'm starting to become a firm believer that everything happens for a reason, regardless mm. of how cruel and unsensical it is at times. Like, I was always meant to do this race. It was it's the 
pinnacle so far of what's occurred in my little life of positives and I can only thank my mum for it because there's no way I would have done or entered this race if if mum had it passed away but I'd rather have my mum here any day of the week but but I thank her every single day for having such an incredible opportunity because the race is just you'd pay 80 grand to do this race honestly with what you get out of it yeah fantastic now, let's go into a little bit more in depth about the Mongol Derby, Kathy. So, it's obviously in Mongolia. It's a thousand kilometers. How many people enter? Obviously, you, you know, they pretty much will take anyone who can pay the fee and is willing to say they're going to risk their life to go into it. Explain to the listeners, you know, a little bit more detail about how it sort of runs and, and how many days it takes and, and all the finer details of this incredible and yet challenging race. Yeah, so the Mongol Derby, she's a beast. Um, <laughs> so it, de- it depends every year. So when I entered in 2018, I think 35 riders entered, 32 showed up to the start line. There's normally 1,400 horses involved in the race because each horse is only ridden once and um, herding families throughout the 1,000-kilometre distance are involved. So there's normally up to 400 herding families involved in this race as well, along with drivers, translators, crew, uh, there's normally a film crew, there's photographers. It's a very big event. It was all started by a fella called Tom in England who was over there scouting out for another big race he runs called the Mongol Rally, and that's when he found out about the history, being a big history buff. He went into the history of Mongolia, Genghis Khan, and just learnt just how much the Mongolians love horses and their history with the horse, and that's when he formed this idea of this horse race, recreating Genghis Khan's postal system. Genghis Khan back in the day had a fair bit of land that he ran Mm. (laughs) and um, he used to give his messenger a note and that messenger would take off on a horse and roughly 40 k's later he'd swap onto another horse and ride for another 40 k's and his postal system was like better than Australia Post these days, many would say. (laughs) And um, that's what the whole race is sort of uh, based on there. But as soon as you get to Mongolia and you learn about Mongolia, what the race is really based on is the open-heartedness and the care that the Mongolians have. Their little families are just the most incredible people I've ever met in my life. And um, you can rock up to anyone's gur, which is what they live in. So a lot of people know them as yurts, which is a little white dome sort of tent things. But over in Mongolia, they call them a gur, G-E-R. And that's their homes. They're nomadic. They shift with the seasons. Sometimes they shift just because it's a bit windy where they are. And they think, bugger this, I'll move to the other side of the hill out of the wind. It takes them half an hour to pack up their camp and so they can move to anywhere. Normally their little girls have like a wife, kids, cousins, visiting aunties and a handful of kids in this little tent and it's the warmest, friendliest, most beautiful homes you will ever enter. They take so much pride. It never feels like you're in anyone's home of poor or unwealthy people. They're always so welcoming. They give you anything and everything they can. And that's what the whole race is based on. You can rock up anywhere, even people's homes that are not part of this race, and everyone will welcome you in and give you somewhere to sleep. You speak their language when you're on their horse. Their whole world is horses. So when you're pelting along on the back of a Mongolian horse, they have great pride in seeing that, and they they really love their horses a lot, and it gives them great pleasure for you to ride their best horse or their most well-known horses. And that's what the whole race is based on. It's just the care and the love that this country has. And people that enter this race, one of the main questions you are asked is, what do you think of horses? And normally the people that say like they're a work animal and they do a job don't get to do this race. But the people that really understand the horse and understand that like they're an amazing animal with a big heart and they have every right in their own respect to say, you can't hop on my back, but they always let us. and They always let us do what we want most of the time. And so you change horses every 30 to 40k so you ride up to 30 horses for this race and there's no greater feeling than riding an animal that you've never met in your life and you're a complete stranger and it gives you its whole heart and every part of it to carry you that 30 40 kilometers is just that's what healed my soul I say is just all these horses that didn't know me and didn't know how broken I was but they didn't care they just let me hop on them anyway and every single one of those horses gave me their heart and it just filled mine and then I'd go into these beautiful family homes and they'd ask me a thousand questions even though I couldn't talk their language and you could sit and have conversations and they learned of my mum and they learned of Nick and 
it was just the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. And that's what this race is. Like everyone that enters this race, whether you finish the race or you don't finish the race, all of the people touched by this country all say their whole world changes in one respect or another after the end of the race. You go home and it's never the same after. You go back to your Western civilization and all the material things we hang on to and you just realise what utter fucking nonsense it all is. It's very primal, isn't it, Mongolian living? It is very primal, but it's it's comfortable. Like it's a very comfortable life as well. Like they live in very extreme elements. It gets minus 50 over in Mongolia in winter, but their little homes and their, the way that they live, it's it's a very comfortable life that they live. It's hard, but but it's basic and we make life so complicated and end of the day it doesn't have to be anywhere near as complicated as we make it. And I am very much raise my hand and I overcomplicate the living fuck out of my life. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I think we all, all can be guilty of that to some degree. The race is a 1,000 kilometres. You're swapping horses every sort of like 30, 40 Ks. You're riding around 30 different horses. Look, I've ridden as a kid. I used to do pony club, you know, been on a horse many a time, but if I'm not practised, my ass gets sore. <laughs> you know, yeah. I could get on a, in a saddle for a couple of hours and I can't walk the next day. So what kind of training did you have to do or how long did you train for in leading up to your first race in 2018? And so this is where the story crumbles. Well, it doesn't crumble, but it's the pinnacle of my 2018 race. So what I didn't touch on before is um, you have 10 days to do this race. Normally the winner crosses day seven and the tail end Charlie's come in at the end of day 10. So you have to average a minimum of 100Ks a day essentially to finish this race. And so on day three, I managed to tear uh, start a tear in my shoulder blade and day five I dropped out of the race and that's oh. all due to me not training how you should train. Oh, so because no. mentally I was in such a difficult place when I entered this race, for me, my safe spot in my brain to train for something so mammoth was riding horses because that's what I knew how to do. So all I did for training was riding horses because it's a thousand kilometer horse race where you ride horses. So maybe you should ride horses. That was that was how my brain worked. In reality, I needed to do a lot of endurance on myself, my own physical heart, not the horses I was riding. And um, I needed to do a lot of strengthening training, lots of weights and things like that, which I did not do. And so I'm a very flexible person. And with that, I lack stability within all my joints, which is exactly why I tore out my shoulder blade. Nothing severe happened. I didn't fall off. It was nothing dramatic like that. It was literally just from wearing my hydration backpack, three litres of water on my back bouncing along and then just the strain of everything's your shoulders when you're riding a horse like a lot of your balance comes out from up here and it's just the hydration and using my shoulders constantly when they were not constant in use before and that's what started the tear and um, yeah I had to drop out of the race because of that but that also leads to the comeback story. (laughs) Mm, That would have been devastating for you. Well that's what I would have thought as well but because of the way the Wungal Derby runs I injured myself day three and mentally I was like, nah, fuck this, I'll keep riding. (laughs) And so that's why I rode until day five morning and I hopped on a horse day five morning and it was a beautiful horse and I rode to the next station and I knew I couldn't ride any further. I was only halfway through the race and I was just in so much pain. I couldn't ride properly because of the pain that was coming from my shoulder. So I hopped off and I went and seen a medic and I said, I think I'm out of this race. I can't keep going with this pain levels that I had. And so the medic seen me and he said, yeah, it does look pretty bad. And so they sent me back to the city, Ulaanbaatar, for x-rays and that to make sure nothing was broken or dislocated. And that came back all clean. It was all just ligament damage more or less. And so I had a choice where I could either sit in a hotel in Ulaanbaatar until my flight left or I could go back out onto the race, racing grounds and sit with crew and just tour along next to the crew. And so even though I hadn't touched a camera in about six years, when I went to Mongolia, I had one of my old sort of professional kits sitting in my luggage. And so when we went back to the city, I grabbed that. And then I went back out with my arm in a sling, but with a camera in my other hand. And then that's when I started <laughs> documenting the race from my perspective. That's when everything really started to fall into place then. I really got to slow down and sit with families because you're going so fast through that race. You do go into a family's home, but then you leave quite quickly because you have to hop on another horse. But because I was injured and just hanging around, 
and I didn't have to leave until that crew car left. I sat down, I played with the kids, I talked with the families and I started taking photos and documenting the race from my perspective. And those photos now are pretty special photos. I had a limited edition print line on them. Oh, amazing. They're, they're very special and it really, it really ignited that fire in my belly of essentially I, I call it living. <laughs> very simple, very cliché. But for me, when I slowed down, when I started picking up something that I hadn't done in a very long time that I very much loved and was good at, I was like, no, 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 it doesn't all end. There's far more to this life. Like shit things happen, but good things happen too and you've just got to keep pushing through that shit when you're in it because when it comes good, it comes so good. And, and that injury was exactly what needed to happen in that race because I got to really slow down and see the race from a totally different perspective. And I say like riding the horses and there's one particular horse I rode that I talk about when I do my keynote speaking, Nardam, that changed my world. And he did change my world, but the photography and, and sitting with those families is what really pushed pushed the little limit in my little belly to go, no, like, let's do this. Like, let's, start, let's really start living again. How did Nardam change your world? Nardam was a very special horse. Nardam's with me forever. I have a very cool tattoo now on my arm because of Nardam. So it was one particular morning and everyone was fighting over horses. It's just like fucking pony club. Everyone was there. Everyone wanted to ride, pick a horse first, saddle up a horse first and get out of it first. And even though it was a race, I wasn't really in a race mindset. And so I just sort of sat back and I was like, I'll just go back and I'll just sit with the family a bit longer, have another cup of tea with them. So I went back into the dirt and I had a cup of tea I went out about half hour later and all the commotion had died off and there was only a couple of horses left standing on the line. And I went out there and there was this paint-looking fella that looked absolutely spectacular in my mind and I said, I'll ride that one there. And the Mongolian herder in his own language said, like, that's a very good horse you just picked. And so I hopped on Nardam and from the moment I hopped on him, I knew that it was like that herder's best horse because he was an amazing animal to ride. He was so well-trained. And that horse, we rode through a big mountainous pass and then we came out onto a big plateau that took us to the next horse station. And from the moment I hopped on him, that horse just gave me absolutely everything he had. He was a a remarkable racehorse and he just flew. And I have videos and GoPro footage of me riding that horse that like sits with me forever. There's lots of dogs in Mongolia. It's sort of like camp dogs, we call them over here, and it's the equivalent of in Mongolia. People with gurs have like camp-type dogs, quite big dogs, very shaggy, extremely aggressive, and they chase you on horseback, and they often try to bite your feet or bite at your horse's tail and pull wow. you to the ground. And this horse, every time a dog came at it, he just found another gear and would pout along. And at one stage he was galloping along and managed to kick a dog at the same time. And he was just phenomenal. When I rode Nardam, I thought, this is the horse. This is just the best horse I've ever ridden in this country and in my life. And I hopped off that horse at the end of that leg and I just never wanted to give him back. He is just such a beautiful horse. And I thought, that's so unfair that I never get to see this horse again. Now, just to give a sort of a visual to listeners, the horses aren't big like a a standard Australian thoroughbred. They're kind of like kids' pony-sized horses. They're quite small. Like what would they be, like 13, 14 hands maybe in terms of height? Like they're not not big at all. No, Mongolian horses are quite small. Yeah, a lot of the ones I rode were anywhere from 12 to 13 hands. Like your bigger ones were 14 hands high. And so most people that don't understand hands, it's about chest height is what most of them were on me. So I'm 5'6". So, yeah, about the level of my chest is the level of what most of those horses were. But they're small but mighty. They're um, If you want to get into the horse side, they've got really big like bone composition and so their heads even though you're riding a very small horse they actually their head size is the size of like a thoroughbred head they have very big heads their rib cages are massive because mongolians believe the bigger the rib cage like the faster the horse the more lung capacity and so mongolians do breed their horses select horses so for generations they've been selecting big rib cage horses so you do have these animals that have they're not very big but they're mighty is what you're riding, like small but mighty. They're very sturdy, strong animals. Now, in 2018, 35 people registered, only 32 started. How many people finished? I think 14 finished officially. 
Yeah, so you have a thing called a carry forward. And so basically, like, I don't know, if you're a bit weak and you decide I don't want to ride this leg but I still want to finish the race, then you enter the adventure category and you're no longer racing. So even though, like, there's 14 official finishes that they rode every single kilometre of that race and then there might have been, like, 24, I think, people were in the adventure category, so they had outside help help them at some stage or another and got carry forward and then they rode across the line, but they did not ride the entire race. And what do you do in terms of <laughs> – sorry to ask this, but I'm so inquisitive to know. You know, what if you need to go – like you, if you're riding, what, what kind of hours are you riding and what if you need to eat, drink, hydrate, go to the bathroom, dare I say? How does all this happen? Like what happens during the day? And, yeah, how long are your days of, of riding? So in that race, I think the riding times were 6.30 to 8 o'clock at night. Eating – toilet and all that it's all pretty straightforward because every horse station so every time you change horses is someone's home and they cater for you so there's always food in that girl now it's not food that we normally eat most of it's just a big old pot of boiled meat because it's traditional mongolian food and a big bowl of fermented mare's milk is what normally greets you and that's your food and a lot of people have issues with that food because it's not very easy on the old digestive system if you've been a vegetarian and then a toilet is a hole dug in the ground with a bit of tarp that's always normally at a great level of your butt. And so normally, it, depending how sore the legs are at the end of the day, it's pretty hard to go to the toilet and not moon absolutely everyone in the countryside while you're trying to bend down. <laughs> but that's normally the food and toilet situation. But there's a thing called derby gut that nearly every single competitor gets. A lot of people blame the food and it probably is the food in part, but what I have since learned with endurance is when your body is going through endurance, a lot of the time the body goes, right, it's time to expel everything because we have to concentrate on the body keeping going through our high heart rates and so normally your body expels all and that's what derby gut is and so sometimes you have no choice midway through the race but to make an emergency dismount and normally because there's no trees on the step country you just squat next to your horse and hope like hell that no one comes <laughs> wow were you wearing a heart rate monitor at all do you know what your heart rate was getting up to during the race no not that race i didn't have a heart rate monitor but the second race um which i don't think we've touched on but i did do it again uh but the second time i did have a heart rate monitor um but i was also very fit but in, you know, when riding those pretty extreme horses and when they really get going and your heart rate's up there, it can get up to the 190s. I think it was the high, highest my heart rate got for my age, which is pretty high. Um, but most of the time you're in what they call zone two, which is like 120 heart rate to 150. And a lot of the time you'd sit around 135 was my average heart rate. And each horse leg roughly took anywhere from two and a half to three and a half hours. And you would stay at that 135 heart rate for that extended period of time. At the time, you were how old? I was 27 years old when I first did the race, yeah. So, Cathy, you've done the Derby twice. When was the second time you did it after your having to pull out from injury in, in 2018? When was the second time you attempted to finish the race? Yeah, so the moment I dropped out, I knew I was going to re-enter the race because I knew everything that I needed to do that I didn't do the first time. And so I re-entered to race in the doomed year of 2020, but we all know what happened in 2020. <laughs> and so the race got delayed to 2021, but especially coming from Victoria, we all still know what was happening in 2021. And so the race got delayed again thanks to COVID. And so I got to do the race the second time last year, July 2022 is when I got to, to ride the Mongol Derby, the Mighty Beast again. And what did you do differently the second time around in terms of prep leading up to the second attempt at the race? Well, this is when everything goes from such lows in my life to such highs. So my second attempt at the race was just a total opposite. You know, mentally I'd come back and it wasn't like a quick pill. It wasn't a quick fix. Like I still had my struggles, but I was in such a strong state of mind and um, I was so focused and like I like to call it, like I just got hyper-focused on training for the derby and I delved in deep in every single aspect of endurance and how you train and what I need to do. I sought out a trainer and even though I live quite remote, he agreed to train me like online more or less, worked out what my body weaknesses were. Was that like a personal trainer? Yeah. So basically Bansdale is my closest town. So it's two and a half hours away down at Bansdale. And I basically just like Googled gyms in Bansdale. 
<laughs> and came across one that I was like, oh, yeah, I'll go to that one. And I just, I'd never been in a gym in my life. So I just walked in the door and a guy was mopping the floor. So I was like, hi, I'm doing this big race overseas and I need help. And that was when I met a fella called Jack. Jack and Mac, they call themselves, and they now run the In Situ <laughs> podcast, and they're a big health and fitness people. Shout out to Mac and Jack. But um, <laughs> they sort of started the the change of a big change in my training. You know, Jack was awesome. He he really taught me that you don't just do what everyone else is doing. You work out the body you're working with and what your weaknesses are, and what it is that you need to to fix in your body for your strength. And so, me, obviously, one big weakness, my shoulder. So we had to sort of rehab that along until it was strong enough to take on training for the derby. And a lot of my training was not what a lot of people think it would be. It was very slow. It was because we worked out that I'm flexible but lack stability. Everything that I did for training was really slow weighted movements. So it's like the term they call it is resistance training. So I did lots and lots of stuff at very, very slow squat paces with weights and balance boards to build up stability in my ankles, stability in my knees, stability in my shoulders, lots of weighted slow movements. I would do that five to six times a week every morning, an hour and a half a day. And then another big part when I got closer to the derby was building up my endurance of my own physique, which did not mean riding horses. A lot of the times, because I would come from the mountains, which worked in my favour, I would put on my hydration backpack and I would go for big hikes and runs up and down the mountains and I'd get my heart rate into zone two, which is 120 to 150 heartbeats a minute. And I would train at that pace for mimicking a horse station leg, which is anywhere from two and a half to three and a half hours. And that was my training. I would do that also three to four times a week on top of Jack's training. And then with all that training, you have to do mobility, which is essentially flexibility. And so I would do stretches and Pilates type movements once a day, which I'd normally do at night time while I was cooking up dinner. And I totally changed my nutrition. And that also leads to the story of me stopping alcohol altogether as well, because I stopped drinking. And that's when physically my body changed massively because I realized just how detrimental alcohol is to the body, even if you're only drinking small amounts. And that was training. It was a total 180. I fell in love with fitness too. I really just, I really enjoyed it. And I still do a lot of training to this day because it's the old cliche. Amazingly, when you move your body, it helps your mind. And they're spot on because when I don't train for a while, mentally, I do suffer. And um, when I start training again, it's just the lights go back on. You are really determined to go back. You know, you'd had a few kind of setbacks trying to from 2020 obviously where because of COVID you've had to wait four years to go and attempt the race again and even after all that time you were so driven to go and I guess I, I, I sense that you were going the second time around a little bit more competitively. Yeah I like when I say it was everything was focused on the derby everything I don't watch TV, but if I was watching something on my iPad, it was YouTube documentaries on endurance trainers, Olympian mindset. I would read. I'm a big reader. I love reading books. All my books next to my bed were stories of like ultra marathon runners, Olympic mindset, and like how to train your brain and all this stuff. Everything from outside in. I was focused on the derby. Every time the derby got delayed due to COVID, I said, "You ripper! I get another year to train." perfect that's exactly what I need I was so focused I wasn't probably some people would say unhealthy at times I wasn't going I couldn't be bothered going to parties I couldn't be bothered going out on weekends or going to the pub for a feed I was like nah I'm not doing that because that means I won't get to bed at nine o'clock which means it'll affect my sleep which will affect my training so I'm not going to do that and I just focused in 100% and then because of the um, COVID and all that, obviously, like it did extend it out. And so I learned very quickly how to overtrain because I was like, cool, I'll just keep training and training. But then your body does crash. And so I learned what overtraining was in the first sort of two-year period. And so then I learned that you need to cycle up, to cycle down, to cycle up again. And um, it all just worked in my favour every single every single step of it. And leading into that derby, when I did return to Mongolia in July 2022, I was unbelievably fit. I was so proud of myself because I never, ever, ever a fitness person. I did not enjoy running anywhere unless it was away from an angry cow. And yeah, to to be back in Mongolia and so fit 
and mentally so strong. It was just such a almost euphoric feeling in a way because I just felt like a totally, totally different person when I was back back in that country again. Yeah, it sounds like you were just you were completely prepped for whatever it was you were just about to take on. Yeah, I tell quite a funny story because um, I got right into the nutrition side and gut microbes, and I learnt that like you know you might shit your pants right in the derby because your gut microbes aren't used to their food. <laughs> and I was like, oh righto, like I need to eat more dairy products that are unpasteurized and unhomogenized. So I started driving to Aubrey with Donger and going to like farmers markets and like <laughs> buying all these cheeses and goat cheese and all this stuff and bringing it back here and like right like time to change the gut micro because we're a month and a half out and so now I need to do it and it was <laughs> foul like <laughs> some of the stuff I ate it was absolutely horrific but I just keep eating it because I was like it'll harden the guts and all I ate was meat because that's all you eat over there. It's just, yeah, I was obsessed. I was really obsessed. I've heard the fermented mare's milk is absolutely horrid. Yeah, it's – maybe I'm used to it. <laughs> it's bad, but I can I can drink it. But, oh, it's like warm fizzy yogurt is how you describe it. It's warm fizzy yogurt. But, like – does it taste like yogurt? Like, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. well, distasteful, warm, fizzy yogurt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, leave your yogurt pot out in the sun on a 40-degree day and then go have a sip of it that night, and I reckon that's what fermented mare's milk tastes like. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. All right. So you, you got back. You got back there last year, July twenty twenty two. Had the race changed at all over the like few years since you last entered? You know, were there any new rules or were there more competitors because COVID had kind of knocked things around a bit? How, was there any difference, or were you looking at the same kind of logistics and the same setup as you had encountered in twenty eighteen? A lot more competitive people was in this race compared to in 2018 was my general vibe but I don't know if that was partly because I was in such a different mindset because I was really competitive when I returned I was still me I was still Kathy I was still happy to yarn to absolutely anyone and talk to them even if they didn't want to talk to me I just still talk but yeah I was very competitive yeah so how did your race in 2022 go I say like I didn't think that race could change my life and had such a substantial impact um a second time round but again, I was proof wrong because it did. For me, like, because I was such a different person, like, I really got to enjoy the horses a lot more on this race because I was so fit. I wasn't suffering. Like, I, I suffered that first race. From leg one, day one, I was in pain. And this next race, and like, really proud to say I, I never was in pain. I had this weird thing, like a bug bit my face and I had my eyeballs swell shut, but that was like my only incident wow, that occurred wow. um, which I promptly covered up and decided to not tell anyone about and so I put my sunnies on and pretended nothing had happened but um yeah my body physically held up so well this race and it made it really really enjoyable because I could just I just thrived I was competitive and so I did get a few heart rate penalties which is vet penalties because you're vetted in and vetted out and you have to pass a vet check before you can pick your next horse. Okay, so they're checking the heart rate of, of the horse. What kind of measurements are they doing for that? Yeah, so in the endurance world in well, essentially any sport, but definitely in horses, um, you're vet checked in, you're vet checked out. So they check the horse for soundness, like if it's lame, um, they check gut sounds, hydration and heart rate. And then when you hop off at the other end, your heart rate has to be under 56 beats per minute within half an hour of greeting the vet and because I was quite competitive this time round, I wasn't willing to sit on a horse for eight kilometers out and walk in and so instead I'd ride to about four kilometers out and walk in but because I was competitive and confident I was picking quite feisty horses that I knew would gallop quite fast and because of that they were pretty wild when it came to vet checks I had three herders hanging on to a horse at one stage and it was rearing up while the vet was trying to take its heart rate and I thought, geez, this is not looking good for a 56 beat. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a couple of uh, couple of heart rate penalties in that race, but it only added to the story and we could talk for hours on this race. But my heart rate penalties ended up being part of the story because every time I sat for two hours or four hours at a horse station, the families I would engage with and talk with just 
again, totally changed my perspective and my mindset and really, really just ignited such a huge passion inside me to really back myself, I call it. Like I was always happy to work for other people and do what I was told sort of. And and that race and those heart rate penalties, it just proved to me that like we're all, there's so many of us in this world, like so many peoples and all that, but we all matter and we've all got a story to tell. And you shouldn't just bow down necessarily throughout your life. And and when I was doing that race and sitting with herders and chatting with them back and forth, I thought, gosh, like, you know, we're all so unique and everyone has a story to tell, even these people and these girls that live such a simplistic life. They all had such fascinating stories. And I thought, why should I just be average essentially? Like, you know, we all have a choice and I, oh, I, I really like sat and contemplated like just how, I don't mean to be too woke, but just how privileged I am to be able to have so many choices and I'm choosing to sort of to remain average and that's a choice that I'm making and I'm so lucky to have a choice to not do that. And so that's what that second race did for me. It it, it really gave me confidence in myself to go like I matter and I'm important, which is something that I, I'd honestly never really had before. And um, it's weird that it came about, but I guess it was self-reflection and sitting around and just all I did was sit and talk to to herders, and that and that's what that's what sort of instilled it. And then a lot of these herders were the same herders from 2018, and I was so lucky that some of them recognised me and they would point at me and they would talk, and you could understand that they were basically saying like, "You've done this race before, haven't you?" And I had photos on my phone with them from the first race and. And that's when that horse, old Nardum, comes back into the story because I got to a horse station and it was the same horse station as in 2018 and I knew exactly where I was and I walked up and down that horse line and within a couple of seconds I picked out old Nardum who was tied up on the horse line there with a number on his bum which told me he was in the race and I could pick him. And so I got to ride that horse that I thought I'd never, ever see again. See again. Oh, how beautiful is that? It was amazing. Like I say, I spent half that leg laughing and half of it crying (laughs) because I was just so, so blown away to be able to ride that horse a second time. And that second time was just, it was just heaven. I, I said after I hopped off that horse that I don't care if I get injured or fall off or whatever and the race ends, like, like that horse was everything to me to ride it again and I could have finished that race and walked away like just as happy and just as full in the soul. But I did finish that race despite my penalties and <laughs> competitiveness. I still managed my one goal that I set aside, which was to come top 10, and I came across that line in 10th position. Oh, well done. I was absolutely fucking stoked, yeah. <laughs> There's no other words. I swore like an absolute trooper when I crossed that finish line. Uh, <laughs> I screamed for joy. Yeah, it was just incredible. Something that started in 2017 and in a way finished in July 2022 was just, it was amazing and like you really understand like sports people and people that accomplish like these big things. Like you can read about it and go like, oh, good on them. Like that's cool. But when you sort of do something similar to them and really achieve that goal, you really understand like just what's involved and just how much people put in. And it's like a drug. Like it, it really is just this ultimate, ultimate feeling that I don't, I don't know how you can get that feeling. Yeah. Mm. To be able to ride this race, it's a thousand kilometers. It's on horses that you don't know. It's unfamiliar. It's unfamiliar country. You can't speak the language. Like there's a lot of variables that are quite would make many people uncomfortable it's very challenging and for you to go and do that I think that really is a very good representation of who you are as a person even though you've had this loss with Mick your boyfriend your mum you know you've had all these setbacks but then you've gone I'm just going to go and it kind of it's almost like it was like a rebirth for you to go and achieve it and then to actually complete it, which is phenomenal because I under, I know multiple people who have done the Mongol Derby, but I know how, I understand how challenging it is for, for you to complete it and for ha- to have that sort of four-year period from the first one to the second one is, is a r- true representation of who you are as a person too. So, so kudos to you for actually having the tenacity and the capacity to go and do that and take on that challenge. 
It's it's what I always say. Like the first the first race changed my life, and I just I didn't think the second one could, but the second one totally did, and it's given me such great perspective on so many different aspects of life now because of that race. And I would have never ever ever had that perspective had I not partaken in this uh, amazing race and um, met those wonderful people. Kathy, thank you so much for sharing that. I didn't actually know before coming into this interview the loss you had with Mick and your mum. And it kind of really, to me, knowing that, it actually makes it more profound that you've done this incredible, you've had this incredible experience and you've taken on this incredible challenge and you've done all this training and preparation and and entered, you know, one of the world's toughest races, but it came purely from this darkest moment of the loss of your boyfriend and your mother. So I didn't know that. And that I think it makes your story and the growth and the turnaround and how you've walked away from alcoholism and and stepped out of depression and all these things, this lowest point of your life, it just, it means so much to me. So thank you very much for sharing that and having the capacity to go, hey, well, yeah, I did this Mongol Derby, but, but it just, I just didn't fall into it. It came from one of the lowest places in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Having had some challenges in life myself. And, you know, I think for anyone who's been through some hard times, when you come out and you do something like that, you kind of know life is not a, a straight line. It is up, down, it's, it's around. So whenever the next thing or when something happens to you again that is challenging, and is is a hard time for you, you know now you can get get out of that because you've done it before. It set you up for this this skill and the tools for life to to keep going. That's what the tattoo also represents to me. It's like and it's right there for me to see is because like every time I look at it I go like you were capable of really, really, really hard things. Like that for me is the story of everything that occurred in the Mongol Derby and it's I look at that and I go, no, like you can do really hard things and come through it. And this is just, it's its a part of life. Like it's just the next hard thing that you just, it's all mindset. I've learnt that now that it's all mindset and that it is important to be sad and to grieve though, but its it, you can't stop the world turning, which is what I tried doing with Mick is I tried to press pause and there is no pause and that's why it got so bad. But But life goes on and it's all just part of it. Like everything you learn in life, you don't know how long you have. It could be cut so short. So you've just got to live. And we're so lucky that we live in Australia in reasonably privileged positions where we can have choice to do whatever the fuck we want, really. Because so many people do not have that choice. And like I talk about the herders and they're amazing people, but a lot of them do not have a choice to be herding in minus 50 in Mongolia but they live extraordinarily happy lives because of it. And I have a choice and I can make my life so chaotic and fucking insane at times, but it's all my choice. So, yeah, it just gives you great perspective. 